Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's finally spring, and I'm saying goodbye snow, hello adventure. And during the Honda Dream Garage Spring Event, you can get epic deals on your favorite Honda model. Ready to get rugged? Then take the off-road in an all-wheel drive Honda SUV, like the CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, or redesigned Ridgeline. Want to take a spring road trip? Then check out a fuel-efficient turbocharged Civic or Accord. Say goodbye to winter and hello to a new Honda. Don't miss huge savings during the Honda Dream Garage Spring Event. Now at your local Honda dealer. We are no one. We are everyone. And we are invisible. Tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock. We convinced ourselves that they were gone. But they were just hibernating. Tick, tock, They came for everybody. Oh, please. Are we safe? I guess we have ourselves a reckoning. Nine Inch Nails frontman Trent Reznor first collaborated with Atticus Ross on the score of David Fincher's The Social Network, for which they won an Oscar. In this new episode of The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen, they talk about their work on Damon Lindenloft's Watchmen, the HBO limited series based on the DC Comics graphic novel about masked vigilantes. Reznor and Ross, who has produced Nine Inch Nails albums since 2005 and joined the band in 2016, have also continued to work with Fincher, including on Mank, the director's upcoming biopic about Citizen Kane screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz. They have also collaborated on Ken Burns' The Vietnam War and Pixar's upcoming animated film Soul. Today you'll be hearing an interview with Reznor and Ross that was recorded remotely on April 17th. We'll also listen to some of their music from the Watchmen series. I'm Carolyn Giardino. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. So thank you so much for joining us today. It's our pleasure. Thank you. For starters, were you both fans of the comic book series? Uh, this is Trent here. Um, yes. 
I kind of got into it after it had already uh, made its cultural mark, you know, several years later. But unquestionably, thought Watchmen, think Watchmen, graphic novel was an unprecedented kind of landmark in its medium and really opened my eyes up to what could be done in that format. It's a brilliant collaboration. How'd you get involved? Yeah, Atticus and I have been scoring here for a while now. Kind of got into it accidentally with David Fincher asking us to work on social network, I guess, 10 years ago. And we found it to be a really uh, refreshing medium to work in. It allows us to kind of work outside Nine Inch Nails and work on composition where we're not the people kind of running the show. We find that exciting, where we're working in service to picture and someone else's vision and trying to, you know, it forces us into a collaborative space that we hadn't really been in before. You know, we tend to not interface with the outside world as much as possible. (laughs) And, you know, we'd noticed the kind of random projects being offered to us. And at one point a few years ago, we went to our film agent and made a list of people that we thought were interesting, different directors, producers, uh, writers, actors. And somewhere in that process, you know, I'd gotten wind that HBO was considering Watchmen as a series. And more importantly, Lindelof's name was revolving around it. And Damon's one of those people that were were on that list that I've, I've always felt, and Atticus as well, we felt was a a fascinating storyteller and really doing something in his medium that I thought has been breaking boundaries and kind of opening things up. Anyway, the combination of those two things, the risk involved, you know, because certainly it would be a risky project to even attempt to pull off. But we were very interested in it. So we said, hey, go ahead and ring their bell and see if there's any interest in us. And that's kind of how it came about. So what were some of those initial discussions with Damon about? Um, It's Atticus here. Initially, we went in and we met Damon and it was like a blur of words and ideas and things posted on the wall. And it's not like I have a clear recollection of anything specific that was said in that meeting. But what we did have was the scripts. And it was an interesting project because the scripts, sometimes you can read a script And then you get the film and it feels very much like the script has just been made into pictures. And then sometimes you can read a script and what you get back is the script, but it's been transformed in the kind of magic of the movies way or or whatever, you know. There's the X factor that you just can't put on the written page. And for me, the big turning point was when we got the picture for the pilot. And that was an interesting process in itself because we got a version of the pilot that had been shot and it was good. We kind of looked at each other and we're like, yeah, this is good, you know. And then we get a note from Damon that said, hold off, I'm not happy. I want to rework the footage. And then we get the second version of the pilot, and that was Watchmen. And it was like, just from my experience of what you can do with the same piece of film with editing, I've never seen something transformed that much. 
We're not picture editors, so in our world, we can play a demo for somebody, and we can hear where it's going to go, and I realize sometimes people can't, and they need that translation. You know, for us, the, the, the black arts of picture editing, we saw the first cut of the pilot, and it was good. It wasn't great. It was good. And we assumed it would incrementally get better as often what happens when we're working on things. We get cuts that take it, you know, it gets 10% better as, as you work on it over the next month or two. This one, another cut came that felt 15 minutes shorter and it felt exciting. And it was like, wow, I'm not even sure what they did, but excellent. And it also gave us a kind of roadmap in terms of where Damon saw music fitting in, which is loud, kind of, you know, obviously we're dealing with an intensely serious subject matter on one level, but on another level, there's a kind of fun element. Like, this is going to be fun to watch. It's going to be fun music to make, or certainly we had a lot of fun making it, not to say it wasn't hard work. But that second version of the pilot, to me, was the moment when I felt like this is going to be a great experience. And just to go back to the first question, you know, I have been a huge fan of Damon's and Trent was super enthusiastic, you know, which is rare. So I definitely didn't want to rain on his parade. <laughs> but I, w I was nervous in the way that, you know, like could Watchmen in 2019 be as relevant as it was in 1985 and of all the different achievements one could uh, attribute to the show I think the fact that Damon was able to make it so relevant and keep that kind of anarchic approach to the subject matter was about as good as you could possibly do and just my opinion. Yeah, I'll just briefly jump in. The initial meeting of Damon and his team, you know, we, we didn't know them personally. They didn't know us. We'd shown that we were interested in working on it. They'd expressed interest as well. What we've realized, you know, in our 10 years of doing this is the main reason we want to do it and want to do projects and work in this field is that collaboration and getting to work with people that we can learn from and push and get pushed back and just the experience. And usually in a timeline-driven, intense X amount of time just to see what can happen because it takes us out of our comfort zone. And it's an interesting way to work that's unlike the way we, what we do in Nine Inch Nails. And immediately when we sat in the room with Damon, you know, we felt at ease. We felt this is a kindred spirit. This is someone who's really trying to do something excellent and is unafraid to take on the world, to, to really try something that is going to rile some people up, that isn't going to be what's expected, that is challenging. And in that first meeting, when we heard a kind of overview of what was attempting to be done with the season, like, like Attica said, it was an overwhelming amount of information. And there was a lot of head nodding on our part where we had no idea what the fuck he was even talking about, parts of it. But what you did know is that there was intense passion and integrity and vision, and that seduced us into, hey, we're, we're in. Let, let's see where this goes. And it was tough to know the tone of it. Was it dead serious? Was it music-driven? Was it... Uh, it was hard to see. And it wasn't until we saw that first cut 
and specifically the second version of the first cut where the roadmap was laid out before us. It does go through various tones, not just through the pilot, but throughout the entire series. Could you talk about your overall approach to the score to balance all of those different things throughout the series? This will definitely be a double answer. But one of the things that we do on any project is try and get in early. Like our position has always been that we want to support the picture we also want to be artists in doing that. And I don't mean that in a pretentious way. I mean that looking at a movie or a TV show that's been temped and working out, I need 20 seconds here and a minute and a half here and something that's sad here, that isn't interesting to us. So our process begins with the script and from that script we start writing. And we've done that on almost every project that I can think of where there's been time. And there's almost always been time. And there was time with Watchmen. So we sat down and spent, I don't know, maybe five weeks writing. And I think we delivered 12 pieces. Now, these, when we're writing these, it's inspired by the script, but we're not thinking this is this character's theme, or this is for this particular scene. It's a more impressionistic kind of overview of read it and then write music, and it just starts coming out. And this one was interesting because of that 12, I think it was 12 or 15 initial pieces, I think there was only one or two that made it actually into the show. One very important one. But going back to that idea of collaboration, in other times we've done that process and it's, everything's sort of landed in the film or, uh, you know, that was written in the first place or a lot of it. But this time the pilot, as Trent said before, you couldn't really tell from that scripted page what the role of music was going to be or what kind of music would be the most appropriate. So what happened when we got the pilot was we saw that there was an aspect of we could utilise some of the arsenal that we usually reserve for Nine Inch Nails in the score for this. Like take the Sister Night theme, for instance, none with a motherfucking gun. That, you know, has got a kind of raunchy, distorted bass. It's got an exciting sequence and guitars. It's got an up-tempo beat. You know, it's Sister Night. tour at the time we'd seen the pilot and we did it in a hotel room in Chicago I think the first 12 that we did weren't quite as kind of in your face as that first pilot episode when you think about it you've got Cattle Ranch and the interrogation in the pod and you've got Sister Night along with 
Will's theme and, you know, the silent movie. You know, there's an awful lot of music in, in that first episode. But I've, I also feel like that, that first episode kind of didn't give you the full spectrum, but it was like it was a kind of roadmap for what was to follow. Well, just expanding on what Atticus said, you know, when we get into a new project, what we like to do initially is experiment and just compose music that feels like it might be in the right realm of the film or the project we're working on. And the reason we do that is what what we're doing in the studio is thinking about instrumentation and feel, the way that we're going to arrange the music, what, what types of sounds, is it acoustic, is it electronic, is it cold, is it warm, is it lush, is it minimal? And this allows us a way, rather than trying to talk about unwritten music to a director just to say like this and play them something. So that initial batch of music that we turned over, the fact that it didn't make the cut ultimately wasn't as disappointing as it sounds because we were learning in that process too. And as Atticus mentioned, when we saw what Damon was responding to, you know, a lot of it was much more kind of featured or beat driven or rhythmically intense in your face and it allowed us to as he mentioned tap into stuff we do that we don't normally do in the realm of scoring to get more drums and guitars and whatnot and be aggressive at times so the process itself revealed what the roadmap was and, and it rendered a lot of that initial stuff as just not the right way to go down not, not the right road to travel. So, you know, when I was listening to him just say that, I thought, man, we didn't have a real high hit ratio on that first batch, but it never felt disappointing. It never felt like, oh, we missed the mark. It felt exciting because we were stumbling into the right direction, if that makes sense. You know, it's a process, so there's no wasted time. But part of the reason that we put so much time in up front is to try and mitigate the amount of temp that's ever needed in an episode. So we were able to turn over enough material that, for the most part, it was all our stuff. Even if it wasn't perfect, and even if we rewrote the cue, Damon had at his hands a kind of arsenal of pieces of music that could at least dictate to us the kind of thing that he was going for. Then, and then we could go back and it for real or whatever the right phrase might be. Yeah, and we started off the first pilot, you know, with sessions of spotting sessions and groups of, you know, us going in and talking and notes. And I think that we might have done that for one more. And then it became intuitive, you know, where the routine would be we'd get a script a couple episodes ahead of where we were. Uh, we'd get rough cut of the current working episode and we'd turn stuff over and then it would be, might be an email, series of emails, a couple phone calls, but it was pretty much in sync in terms of the main foundation of music throughout of, you know, we'd, we'd look for his cues of, you know, I don't want anything in this part. I want this to play this way, or we need something to help in this section or this section. And, you know, it was fascinating getting to see his process, you know, and, Damon has a quality that's much like Fincher in the sense that he's able to focus on the most minute detail 
while still seemingly focusing on the macro of every possible thing that's happening throughout the whole project. We're, we're kind of, we can only do one thing at a time type people, Atticus and I, and we immerse ourselves fully, but we won't notice the house is on fire kind of thing. And it's impressive to see people that can out micromanage us, but at the same time be thinking six steps ahead of the other things that might go wrong and how to, how to keep everything in line. So it was, it was good. Let's listen to some more of the music. Would you introduce How the West Was Really Won? How the West Was Really Won was one of the few pieces in the original kind of demo batch that we presented Damon. And when composing it, you know, it felt like the warm, analog, slightly out-of-tune synth uh, the the nod to the retro John Carpenter world of what that conjured up to me. It felt menacing, but it, it felt seductive at the same time. A simple motif that we uh, just kind of let run its course. When we saw it against picture, when he tried it over the scene, and when I, when I think of the kind of pan up with the cars going at nighttime, it just felt like it set the tone that felt... It just had a good, sexy kind of darkness to it. And it just felt right to me, and we were thrilled that Damon responded to it the way he did. And it became one of those signature themes that kind of helped us define what Watchmen was going to be. That's why we put it first on the uh, actual records, and it just felt like if there was a theme, this would be it. writing an email or on a phone call saying, this is Watchmen. And, and like Trent just said, if there was a Watchmen theme, as in terms of the whole show, it would be this particular piece. And in terms of the composition, it does utilise a technique that we came across in terms of where you hear the kind of dissonant cloud that appears which you can't really work out, or is it strings? Is it some voice? Is it, you know, it's, it's unclear, but it feels to me very evocative. And that early process that we go through, part of it is in discovering instrumentation, and part of it is in discovering what processes we can apply to that instrumentation to make it feel unique. I mean, ultimately, what one's always swinging for is that kind of notion of, you know, there's some films where if I see a bit of the film, I'll think of the music. Or if I hear a bit of the music, I'll think of the film, you know, like Taxi Driver or Blade Runner or whatever. I'm not saying that we hit those highs, but I'm saying that we do aspire to that, that the music is part of the DNA of of the... Uh, of the film, or the, in this case, the TV series, that when you hear Watchmen music, you know, oh, that's Watchmen. And part of that is in discovering what that instrumentation and what those processes are. And in this case, we had a kind of modular box that we'd put together that included this very bizarre delay called a tapographic. And what it 
allowed for was that there could be a mic set up and Trent could be playing a, maybe we'd put round, you know, a cello, a violin, a sax, a vocal mic, you know, anything really at hand, something, a feed from the computer. And he would just play over the top of what we were creating, you know, we'd be on headphones and then I would man this station and sometimes, you know, the process might go on for literally 45 minutes. What he's getting at is Atticus and I have worked together for a long-ass time, 20 years, I think. And the relationship, the working relationship, first it's based on a true friendship, and the working side of it is one where we have similar tastes and aesthetics and our skill sets are complementary. And what we've done over the years is sometimes, I'll make this brief, but there's a point to it, is we'll develop techniques that lead to unexpected results. Let's say we're working on a Nine Inch Nails record, and there's one where we made a point to come up with some rules, like nothing gets corrected in the computer. We treat the computer as if it's a tape machine. Whatever the performance is, mistakes, etc., that's what has to be used. You have to pick one. You can't tune anything. You can't fix anything. We can't use tuners on this song or this album. Every synth can't be a preset. It has to be built from scratch and performed by turning knobs, and whatever comes out the other end is what you have to use. You can use a different performance, but you can't fix anything. Say that set of rules. Um, Part of it's madness. Part of it is to keep things interesting in the studio. Part of it's to break your cycle of creation, so you have to think about it in a different way. But the electric part is... It brings back the days of the red recording light being on and don't fuck up because this is electric. You know, what what you do right now matters and it makes you present and it makes you think about it and it makes the thing that comes out the other side has a quality to it sometimes that you wouldn't get if you were sitting back in your chair doing it the way that's comfortable or the way that's perfect or the way that it's able to be fixed. And particularly, say, in the world of rock music where you're trying to, say, create a feeling of anxiety or anxiousness or uh, impatience because it supports the message of the song, we've learned a technique like I just described can make the whole song feel a little edgy because it has elements in there that you, the listener, may not be concentrating on, but makes it feel, it, it supplies urgency. It has a an imperfectness to it that adds character, that makes it human, that makes it exciting, and suddenly your ears tuned into it. The song emotionally affects you the way we're attempting to do that. That's one example of a technique we developed for a certain thing that's not scoring, but we'll bring those things out every once in a while in the experimentation process to see if that helps us or if that can be applied here. There's other techniques that involve, like Atticus was mentioning, it's similar to recording on a cassette tape, but 300 repeats if it got copied onto itself, onto itself, onto itself. And part of the process that we've developed with that is when you're recording, if you mess up, it messes everything up. You can't undo it. It's part of the tape loop. If you played the wrong note, that's now marred everything up to that point. You have to start over again, or that becomes what it is now, and it isn't what you intended it to be. Anyway... 
being able to kind of tap into the many techniques like that that we've come up with over the years for different purposes is just another set of things that we treat almost like instruments. Some of them are homemade instruments. Some of them are favorites. Some of them are tricks we've learned over time that led to that emotional result that that's become our kind of arsenal. And when we take on a new project, we try to think about considering those things. Like, r- rather than it being, are we hiring a 70-piece orchestra? Are we hiring a string quartet? Are we using this? Or maybe if we recorded like that, it's not that anybody on the other end of it knows you did that or it's to show off. It's It, it might contain a quality that has that emotional resonance that we've set out to do. The next clip is Muller time. Can you tell us about that one? Muller time is the opposite of everything I just said. It was a TV show in a TV show. So this is for American Hero Story, the show Inside Watchmen, that's meant to be, you know, exploitative, ridiculous, uh, exaggerated. And we were told to reference kind of the superhero tropes musically. So we just set out to make something that seemed absurd, you know, that that was bombastic and something we we never got a chance to do otherwise. (laughs) And it was fun to do. It was fun and it was, we did it all with samples and it was um, ridiculous. (laughs) Everyone was happy, including us, to have the opportunity to do something like this. The absurdity of it was fun and i don't know that everybody got the joke no they definitely didn't i saw i saw people online like finally they did some real music that sounds like (laughs) we were kind of i'll put it on damon he had mentioned maybe trolling you know no names the yeah no names but you know the kind of superhero genre and what you associate with that and normally we're not as on the nose that like every punch has a big horn stab and you know a kick has a swirling thing and a like Trent said we were having a lot of fun doing it and laughing while we're doing it and Damon was over the moon with it and actually the first instance of that series appears in the commercial that you see on the TV in episode one at Judd's house that particular piece then ends up with the speech and a piece of music that first appears in a different incarnation at the traffic stop in episode one, where you have the kind of racist listening to hip-hop music who goes on to shoot the cop. So it goes from that kind of superhero, slightly ridiculous, to very much our world, with a piece that's gradually gaining tempo that gives it that kind of urgency and I think is pretty interesting under the why do I wear a mask speech. Next, we're going to listen to The Way It Used to Be. Would you describe how the story inspired that cue? Yeah, this was pretty deep into the process of working with Damon. And I think by that time, 
we all felt comfortable with each other and we were deep into the phase of, hey guys, I know that episode's done, but what if, you know, with, with some absurd request that became kind of fun challenges to try to tackle, that were, there were things out of our wheelhouse. This was one of those. That scene, which was very pivotal and important, the lynching scene in episode six, which all, all the filmmakers were most proud of, of what they were trying to pull off. It had a Doris Day track temped in there, and something about it really worked for the scene. and had a, a haunting quality of something juxtaposed against terrible imagery that really resonated with everybody. But there was no way to get it cleared because of the content. The publishers wouldn't allow clearance for that or anything else in their catalog, which we all had a little snicker over. So the request comes in, could you write something that sounds authentically 1940s, a vocal piece, you know, but could we make it so it's, you couldn't tell the difference from an actual recording of that era? And that was a, that was something we hadn't been asked to do before, although... It's not a million miles away from the world that we're in for another project we're working on now with David Fincher for Mank, you know, of the same era. Right. And that's the biopic about... Mankiewicz, a screenwriter for Citizen Kane. So we'd been woodshedding, just kind of... When I say woodshedding, I mean just listening to music of that era and any free time that we had to kind of let it subconsciously work its way in. I had been studying some sheet music and just not full-time, but paying attention to chord changes and different motifs of that era a bit and, and started thinking about it. So I said to Damon, I don't, I don't know if we can, but we'll, we'll give it a shot. And over a pretty productive weekend, the, the bones of that track came together with the lyrics and melody. And that was also after some conversations about, you know, if, if there were a piece, what lyrically might it say that's not on the nose but could feel in line and i ran some things by him and you know we, we kind of honed in on something so the bones of the track came together pretty quickly and then we uh went to task to try to find the right vocalist and the right arrangement to authentically pull it into space and that's one of those things that i'd say in my entire career everything worked out you know it's, it's rare that that things line up that well, but it was a, an intense deadline and a, a pretty intimidating amount of pressure, but it all came together. And I, I couldn't be happier with the way that piece came together. The result, seeing it against picture, I get goosebumps thinking about it. It was just a great experience. Yeah, I agree. I didn't really have anything to add apart from just being very grateful in a time where Many studios have closed down and the kind of art of recording in the traditional sense, one could argue, is getting lost. That we walked into East West Studios with, you know, this big band ranger and engineer and players and it, it blew my mind. I mean, it was literally like the 1940s coming out of the speakers Everything was period appropriate. You know, the drummer was playing on his catskin, whatever, and we did it in mono. It was just one of those experiences where you're, you're, you're blown away.
Another cue that you had selected as among your favorites was Lincoln Tunnel. Would you tell us about that one? Yeah, and this scene uh, is kind of the emotional climax of the series uh, in which Regina King's character has been trying to prevent the death of Dr. Manhattan, which he knows is inevitable and places herself in great danger and goes into a, a battle to kind of wipe out this gang of supremacists that are about to get him. And throughout the battle, she she fights valiantly, and then Dr. Manhattan comes out and kicks ass. And for a moment, you think that perhaps they have staved this off and they're going to be together. And she looks at him and says, we did it. Then you realize, no. And he's known the whole time that this is inevitable, that he's going to be captured and ultimately destroyed. That's what's happening during this scene. So it's it's a most of it is a shootout leading to this climax where you think there's possibly they have avoided this fate, but it turns out they haven't. And there's a lot of weight the music needs to carry to build that up to where it, it does become very very emotional rather than exciting gun battle you know this is one we're pretty proud of the way it turned out and generally i'd say the way that we work with damon would be mutual agreement 80 percent of the time on, on an approach the other part of the time honestly i'd find when he disagreed with something we felt or instinctually felt something most of that time he was right he was thinking about the bigger picture and he would always push us into something that even if it was against something we thought felt strongly about at the time once the emotion and the grieving process of going a different direction was over we'd realize no that that did work better that was good and it, and it never got you know there was never combat but it might be a disagreement about this or that this was one where initially there was a desire for some more action-based kind of a propulsive music. And we started working on some things that didn't feel right. And we stumbled into this piece. And the kind of uh, playing against the actionness of it, the inclusion of the gospel choir, which we'd gotten approval before we actually went out and hired people to sing it. Point is, we tried something that wasn't what was asked for and I, I, I think it really worked great in that uh, scene. I'm very, very proud of this piece of music and experience of doing it. The series also includes some licensed music. Would you talk a bit how you collaborated with the show's music supervisor? I suppose where we would collaborate in a sense was when they couldn't license a piece, <laughs> like the way it used to be was one of those cases. And then Life on Mars started as a different cover of, of that. And then 
it wasn't that they couldn't clear it. It was that Damon wanted us to take a shot at it, which was incredibly nerve-wracking to touch anything of David Bowie's. Um, but again, I think at the time, you know, just being honest, we were a bit insecure about that piece. And that, again, is a pivotal moment because it's when you discover who Dr. Manhattan is. So what I remember of Watchmen is kind of not knowing what day of the week it was, total immersion, and really wanting it to be as good as the show that Damon was making in terms of the music, and really willing to go to any length to provide that. And like Trent just said, I mean, the occasional disagreement, it was usually an entertaining conversation based in, you know, often some very heavy subject matter. I mean, the Lincoln Tunnel, we extracted the choir from that and tuned it differently to make a piece in the final episode, which is one of the scenes that kind of sums up to me that at least one of the aspects of the show as I read it, and, and it's this idea of trauma and the idea of trauma being carried through generations. And Angela's sitting with her grandfather, Will, and he's kind of explaining a way to heal. And it made sense to bring that music that in a way was a requiem, the loss that Angela was about to endure, and bring it round to what she'd been struggling with through the whole season, which is something we all struggle with. Who, who are we? It was a fun experience, but thinking about it now, it was, an, it was an emotional experience as well. You know, the opportunity to work on this, the fearlessness that Damon and his team brought forth, even starting with taking on a property like Watchmen, where you're already, the odds are stacked against you, you know, with the toxic fan base and the teardown, canceled culture that we live in today, uh, that feedback loop of being in fan service and service to fans and this world that we're currently in. The choice of subject matter that he chose to take this in, which was fearless, the integrity in which that he approached this and his team of writers and the care that they put into this, the respect that we had from them and shared with them and kind of trust that we grew from not knowing each other to becoming good friends in the process and knowing that we could count on them and they could count on us, the teamwork that came from that, the challenges that were thrown at us, you know, like, like these pieces that were the furthest thing from our minds that we'd have the opportunity or be asked to do something set against ridiculous timelines of television you know like it's our first real thing of television that we've done you know and it was like trying to do nine movies in half the time of one movie uh not knowing where it's going to end up completely you know it's a recipe for anxiety and chaos but it it was a great experience through the whole thing it 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 was one of those like Attica said, you forgot what day of the week it was, but you come out the other end and, wow, that was exhilarating. You know, we're, we're disappointed there's not currently a second season because we'd love to jump back in and do it again or do something with those guys and with Damon because it was, it was really fun. Well, thank you both so much for joining us and please stay safe. Thank you. Thank you very much. Holding you 
finally spring, and I'm saying goodbye snow, hello adventure. And during the Honda Dream Garage Spring Event, you can get epic deals on your favorite Honda model. Ready to get rugged? Then take the off-road in an all-wheel drive Honda SUV, like the CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, or redesigned Ridgeline. Want to take a spring road trip? Then check out a fuel-efficient turbocharged Civic or Accord. Say goodbye to winter and hello to a new Honda. Don't miss huge savings during the Honda Dream Garage Spring Event. Now at your local Honda dealer. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.